Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 102 of Control the Controllables. Last week, we had the godfather in tennis, Nick Boliteri. This week, we have the doubles guru. Personally, I I think double is more exciting now than it was. Okay. There's more variation, much more things is happening. And because they play both back, there is also much more like a longer rally. Because when you're at the service line, you either make a steal uh, or the point is over. And that is, of course, Louis Cahier. Back in 2007, he moved to Great Britain and completely changed the landscape of British doubles. Before he arrived, he was already the Canadian Davis Cup captain. He coached numerous world number ones, Grand Slam winners. He'd also coached nine singles players into the top 100 in the world. The guy's knowledge is absolutely phenomenal. As I say, Australian Open, there was nine British players in the main draw, which is absolutely incredible. And then we had Joe Salisbury, making the final of the men's doubles, the semi-final of the mixed doubles, Jamie Murray semi-finals of the doubles. The, the list goes on and on. And to have the opportunity to sit and talk tennis with the man himself was just incredible. It is extremely educational. Sit back, get your notepad out, because there's lots to be written, lots to be learnt. And I'm going to pass you over to Louis Caillet. So, Louis Cahier, welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Dan, and even more right now talking to you. It's amazing to have you on the show, Louis. You've been absolutely right there. We've been waiting for the right time for you to come on. And what better time after we've just finished the Australian Open, you know, nine British players in the main draw. You know, obviously, unfortunately, we're not talking about a winner, but we are talking about a finalist, a semi-finalist in the men's doubles, a semi-finalist in the mixed doubles. And I'm surprised that you've got your eyes open, Louis, because it must have been a lot of late nights the last couple of weeks. Not late night, early morning. Early so I was a semi-final between uh, Jamie Murray and Joe Salisbury, and that was at 2 a.m. And uh, this uh, morning, the final was at 4 a.m., so a lot of times during the last two weeks, I had to wake up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. to watch a match. Then, of course, I provide a video analysis and so on. So, yeah, a lot of early morning. And overarching kind of early reflections on the final. How, how do you feel the final went for John Rajiv earlier today? Well, I have to give, uh, that's a nice story, Philip Polasek. You should have him on his show, you know. Yeah. On your show, he stopped playing tennis, I don't know, for how many years then decided to come back. And when he left, he was good, but he came back after a long time and he's great. And today he was the star of that double match because uh, he lost one point on his first serve, won 50% of return on first serve, which is not very common, and 78% of return of second serve, 
this is like less than common. So he was a superstar in that match, took control. And I talked to Joe and Rajiv and they just felt beaten. So they, you feel bad after, but it's not like a, when you lost like a, you know, super tie break at the end and you know you could have win and you played bad. Uh, they were just beaten. Yeah, and it, and it seems like Polasek was, was inspired. I know that a couple of days ago, he made the choice to to stay in Australia because his his wife gave birth to I think his first child. I'm not sure if it's his first child, but it almost it almost seemed like he was a man possessed out there. Yeah, he was for sure possessed. So if it's that if it's what it takes to get to to win a slam, I think it will give ideas to some players. <laughs> That's, yeah, uh, that... yeah, he was really 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 good. So good for him. But great tournament for uh, Joe and Rajiv, and and it's nice to see also. Talking about the Brits, uh, Jamie back with Bruno, yep. and he gets his mojo back. I think Jamie played very well. Yep. They won Melbourne just before, and to, it's too bad he had to play Joe in the semis. But uh, he, he, yeah, he's doing very well, and pretty much all the Brits are playing uh, some good doubles. It's nice to watch him play. And to, just to take you back, Louis, I'm, I'm curious. You say about Polasek winning. 50% of, of return points off the first serve and 78 off the second. What what are the averages on the men's tour for that? Uh, the objective that uh, Joe and Jamie has in order to finish like always, almost always in the top 10 is to win like over 30% on first serve and 55 on second serve. Okay. If you do that, you win very often uh, the matches, unless of course you serve very poorly, but if you serve decent, Yep. And you win this percentage on the return of serve, normally you win the match. Yeah, so it's quite because a long you, way. You have to win only 51% of the point to win the match. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty much all the time like this, 51, 52, 53. Yeah. There's always a fine margin, and the fine margin are especially on return of second serve. I'm a big fan of of data analysis, and I think you know I'd love to get that into the chat as well today, Louis. But you know, almost even more so in doubles, it seems. But it but it always seems to me when when there is data available, it has to feed into those bottom line stats of, mm-hmm. of how many ultimately how many points that you're winning. You know, I think sometimes people get caught up in how many double faults, or they get caught up in a statistic that doesn't necessarily lead you to that kind of top top stat how much are you using those kind of objective measures with the players uh, pretty much all the time we have uh, every match are tagged and charted yeah and uh, we use the traditional like green amber and red yep. so as soon as i see all the reports at the end if i see red oh i say oh okay i'll come yep. and that the video are tagged so if i see uh, let's say they they won 28% of return of second serve instead of 55. I said, oh, yeah. uh, what's going on there? Then I go in the filter and I, I, I ask, okay, show me every back end return of second serve. Yep. And then I see if I see any patterns. And sometimes the pattern, they are anxious. They had the ball too much in front. Yep. But it's not a technical problem. People will think, oh, technically, no, they were just a bit anxious. Yeah. So I, for example, when the players say, my serve let me down, I prefer to say I was quite stressed today. And yeah. I got my serve or my, my return uh, abandoned me today. I was a bit anxious. It makes me contact the ball too much in front. Yeah. So if they take responsibility for the way they feel as a performer yeah. and how it affects their technique, then they can refocus much more easily in matches and perform much more regularly than blaming the strokes and blaming something. Yeah. Bottom line, 
that they know how to hit the ball. So if they don't hit the ball well during that match, it could be the opponent is too good. You know, like uh, if I play you, you're going to beat me. It's not because I, I choke. Once upon a time, Louis, once <laughs> upon a time, not anymore. <laughs> but uh, sometimes the opponent is too good. But if we're quite even and we miss a lot, it's very often it's because we're not performing well, either mentally, emotionally or physically. And at what point do you go? So let's say it might be Joe, it might be Jamie, it could be Neil, you know, any of the, the, the British guys that you've worked with the last few years. When a red becomes a red flag, you know, if, if it's, as an example, they're, they're winning 28% on second serves. Is it, if that happens three matches in a row, four matches in a row, are you then really looking to dig a little bit deeper? Is there a point that you kind of look at that? Yeah, yes, absolutely. I will not even wait for four matches. Okay. Even two, even two in a row. Okay. You no, know, then I will look and and sometimes they, it's a kind, you know, like the chicken or the egg. Let's say like I, I move very quickly like this. I'm very agitated, so yeah. maybe my mind also will get a bit in a frenzy. Yeah. If I do yoga, breathe, relax, maybe my mind also will relax. There's a connection between the mind and the body. So sometimes I will look and if the player plays return too much with the, his arm, he's yeah. swinging a lot. And if his technique is rushy, very often yeah. his mind gets rushy too. Yeah. And if his mind is a bit anxious, a bit rushy too, his yeah. technique becomes rushy. So sometimes you give a refocus technique because the, the key thing is not to go in, into a match very focused. That's easy. Yeah. It's But it's so easy to lose your focus. So it's more... Yeah how often you can refocus quickly. So if you give them a routine based on time uh, between point, and then if they feel something, like if they feel hitting heavy arm and body together, and if they feel, for example, like just wait for the ball, you know, like so the, the, their mind is on the process because it's so easy to shift into the outcome, wanting to win the point, wanting to hit cross court, wanting to hit a defeat. And during all that time, if your mind is on the future, there's a serve coming to you. Yep. And if you don't set up quickly, if you don't wait for the ball, then everything becomes difficult. Because yep. I strongly believe if you're ready for the ball, it becomes possible. Yep. If you're not set up for the ball, every ball becomes difficult. So it is to refocus on the process, refocus on that, and not, of course, to think technically, have your elbow up and all this, yep. but you can think about a feel. Yep. Feel hitting heavy, feel together, feel this. Uh, that's give an easy refocus to play, to play well after. And, and on that, Louis, so the, the stuff that we do at the academy, I, we work with a sports psychologist. I don't know if you've come across him, Anthony Ross in Australia, who who's fantastic. And, you know, he was a, he was actually a good doubles player. He was about 130 in the world doubles. Um, you know, he's worked with a lot of players, worked with Ash Barty when she was younger. And we, we talk about having helpful attentions to, you know, that, to commit to. And, and we break that down into internal, external, internal cues which would be body or racket external cues which would be target or or a game style cue you know it seems when you're talking about especially the return of serve how much of it do you put on a, on a feeling which might be racket or body or will you have some players that are actually really that work a little bit better where they're committing to a target there's always a what to do before how to do so they have to commit to even at cross quarter down the line yeah if they don't commit to that how will they yeah, uh, make contact. So they, they always need an intention. But uh, once it's time to to hit the ball, 
I made a research, for example, that those who gaze the longest, you know, keep their head at contact, like Federer, yep. are, and many sports are pretty much like the elite, the best. So even if it's a cliche, you know, to focus on contact, yeah, yeah. keep your head still, just keep your mind on the process and feel your head. It's, it's a cliche, but it seems to be supported by some research that is the right thing to do. So the intention has to proceed, but when it's time to hit the ball, you know, your mind has to be right there, your focus right there and let it go. And you should know where you're going to hit. Yeah. But when you, like I say, I mentioned to wait for the ball, a guy like Bruno is very good. We call that in technique like holding. Yeah. So if he hit, wait for the ball and he sees the net player like crossing, it's very easy to change direction. Yep. But if he was doing a continuous motion and suddenly the guy move and he tried to pull the swing in a different way, you could miss a lot. Yeah. So I like the, the feeling of hold it, no wait, hold for the return. And then after that, you know, like counter with arm and body together on first serve. On second serve, then you can attack, you can do this. You know, Jamie is yeah. old fashioned, not yeah. old fashioned, but the old style, come yep. to the net like 80%, but you can hit hard. On second serve, you have a lot of options. On first serve, it's quite difficult. The serve come fast. Yep. And there's a guy at the net like almost like they squeeze a lot now. Yeah. He's done very close to the middle, they say. Try to hit in the trend line or to make a great angle when the ball yeah. comes at 200k. So it's quite difficult. So it's a, uh, yeah, so you need commitment on the return mentally. And then after that, you have to focus on the process, which is feeling the shot and be steady with it. And to, and to those listening, Louis, if you haven't come across Louis, I'd be surprised if many of you haven't. But if you haven't, you need to, you need to check out as much as you can on Louis Kaya because he really is a genius at work. And, and when you're talking about the, the return of serve, I'd love you to share a story which you've shared with me, Louis. I've been fortunate enough to hear this before on why you changed the terminology to being wait. You, you were telling me that yeah. the doubles guys were playing with Andy Murray. Exactly, yeah. First of all, I, mean, I, I come from, I'm a Canadian, so I moved uh, to UK in 2007. So we were using the catch and turn, yep. okay? But we come from a sport more of baseball and we catch you know, the ball in front. So, so it was fine. When I arrived in UK, the catch didn't work that much because they catch like cricket, they catch right, like okay. a rugby. The, it, it was a different and, and didn't work very well. And suddenly, uh, it was dumb and glad to serve very big. Say, wow, you know, it's so frustrating. You serve, you look, and he's waiting with his racket there, and the ball come back to your feet. Yeah. It's, it's amazing, you know, how quick you reach the ball. So I said, okay, that's that's the idea. So let's go right away, wait for the ball, and it has improved the return of everybody. Yeah. Because before you hit it, you have to read it, and you have to prepare. For, and instead of saying prepare more compact, instead of putting the attention on the body because almost everybody say more compact swing. Yep. So on a volley, you don't say more compact swing too, you know? So for me, a ground stroke is a ground stroke, a volley is a volley, and a return is a return. A return should not be like a, a short ground stroke. A return oh. should be a return. Yeah. So you, you wait for a ball, and then after that, uh, you, you could, of course, just block it. You can just neutralize it, or you can look to put more pressure by using your body and we call that contouring, contouring the serve. Yeah. And for that, you need uh, to use your arm and body a bit more together, which is a specific feel. But yeah, it was Andy Murray who inspired pretty much everyone. 
and without returning stuff to be very good in doubles. And I think overall, uh, all the Brits have benefited from that. Yeah, because the eyes, the eyes will pick up, I guess, the direction first, you know, when yeah. the ball's coming at you before it picks up a depth perception. Yeah, yeah they, they pick up the direction first, so you have to yeah. set up quick. And, you know, when you say more compact, what is more compact? You know, like, if my yeah. swing is this, is that more compact? What is yeah. more compact? But if you say weight, that's, yeah. pretty, that's pretty obvious. You just yeah. put your racket there, more or less at the height of the ball, yeah. and then you, you stroke it back. And especially in doubles, you know, you you don't start to point with the moon ball. Okay, you can lob, but very often the lob are defensive. So you have to keep the ball low. So you, you have to prepare quite at the same height as the ball in order to hit the yeah. ball like penetrating low. So it's yeah. not like you have to stand way back and uh, make a nice swoopy deep ball and start yeah. to rally. So the yeah. technique of the return is uh, slightly different. We stand uh, also a bit closer okay. because there's a net player. Yeah. So you need to be you need to be quite sharp to return well in doubles. Okay. So you would so you would teach a slightly different technique for singles. But in singles, uh, look where Andy and Novak and all this sometimes return. They return like a two three meters behind the baseline. Yeah. In doubles, if you were like this, you would have to love, and then there will be two guys ready to smash it. You won't you will not win that many points. Yeah. So uh, the return of first serve, you have to be close to the baseline compared to singles. Yeah, so you, you have to prepare even earlier uh, because you even have less time. Because, you know, the serve takes 0.7 seconds to arrive to to the receiver. Yep. So a lot of people want that 0.8 more by backing up, but we want to be close to the line, so we have to get the job done well. And beside lobbing, you want to almost counterattack your return of serve, keep it low and away from the net player. So it takes a – I think the skill is different than in singles. Yeah. And is it yeah. different between men and women as well? Because the the I guess the speed of serve is so different that I guess the women have a little bit more time. So would you would you teach the same technique to a to a female player as you would a male player when it comes to return? For first, I find the the women return quite well overall. Yeah. And uh, the only thing I will ask is maybe like uh, too old, and I will ask a preparation more based on tactics. So if, if they feel that the opponent squeeze the middle, move or try to poach to just burn them like very quickly. Yeah. Also holding, show them a sense of maturity and control. So for example, even if you have an easy ball and you go to attack your opponent, if you hold your approach shot, yeah. the opponent you have trouble to time their split step because this is the dynamic. If you attack me, I'll try to anticipate you. So you're going to disguise your shot. If you disguise well, then I have to react. So I'm going to look to time my split step to be yeah. as explosive that I can right or left. Left, But you're going to hold your shot. And then boom, so you're going to disrupt my split step timing yeah. on it. And on the return, same thing. The net player tried to read, anticipate, so you disguise or try to be very explosive. And if you hold, you, you glue the net player right there because yeah. they have a feeling if they move, you're going to burn them right away. So I will I will make more a tactical uh, explanation on the exactly the type of return I look for. As for the guy, it's there's a little bit of that more on the second serve, but on the first serve is pure space time. You have to yeah. be there. The ball comes very fast. You need that yeah. type of technique, otherwise, yep. uh, it won't happen. 
I tell you what, this for for a tennis geek like myself to to get to speak to you of all this tennis stuff. This is this is amazing. I've not even got to my first question yet, Louis. And like this is like, <laughs> but but which is absolutely amazing. But no, it's uh, what what fascinates me about you, Louis, is how you've become such a the, an encyclopedia of tennis. And and I guess as I do with all guests, I always want to know where that where that was almost that passion started, you know? So if you go back to your very, very early days, I guess I'd love to know firstly about how the passion for tennis started. And then secondly, your passion for coaching. Well, it's quite strange because in, in eighth grade, when I was 13, I finished uh, first in my class and the prize was a tennis racket. And I asked, what is that? I didn't even know tennis, honestly. Yeah. I have no idea. So the teacher gave me a tennis ball. You say, you use that, then you hit on the wall, on the school wall. So I hit there for about a month and two, and suddenly a guy on a bicycle say, oh, you play tennis? I say, where do you play? By here? Why? <laughs> but you don't play at the club there called Woodland Tennis Club. I say, what is that? So you say, come with me. So you show me a tennis court with the net and all this quartz red. It was nice clay court. I say, wow, that's cool. But the membership was very expensive. It was seven, it was seven dollar for the, the summer season remember <laughs> so you know i'm 68 i was like 13 so that's 55 years ago so i said well, i'll ask my parents so they say okay so i start and i just love the atmosphere the energy i was even going there when it was raining because they had a table tennis who could play a table tennis and play cards it was like a club life a club yeah yeah and uh, yeah i really enjoy it and my passion for coaching uh, it came from a very pretty uh, tennis instructor. <laughs> My job in the summer was to unload tennis truck, uh, tennis truck, uh, trucks yeah. at the hospital, the Toronto hospital, and it was just across a park where there was a tennis courts. So I was going to eat my lunch at that park. There was a very pretty instructor. So I went to just chit chat. Oh, I play tennis too. Oh, I would much prefer to teach tennis than unload trucks. And she said, "Oh, you just have to take that." Uh, course and then I say will I be able to teach same place as you she said maybe <laughs> who knows and I was able to teach same place as her so that was funny Brilliant. so I took a lesson like this and then I, I just just loved it I think I have even more a passion for coaching tennis than actually playing tennis even if I love playing tennis yeah, yeah. Yeah. The, my, my passion for coaching was there from the beginning I was scouted by the uh, person in charge of tennis Montreal he heard about me I was 16 years old or 17. I didn't even take a lunch break. I was eating my sandwich, giving lesson to yeah. kids who wanted to be good. And uh, and I was scouted because we won the baseball tennis championship in our park in Montreal. There was like 22 parks, which is not even a real tennis tournament. Yeah. And he heard about my passion, about how I was always with the kids, helping them. He upgraded me and upgraded me. And when I was 19, I became in charge of the the elite of all the parks. Right. It was in a special part and did well there. Then the province, the Federation, Tennis Federation of Quebec, then heard about me, hired me a job as a provincial coach. And I did well there. The National Tennis Canada offered me a national coach. Yeah. And after that, Davis Cup. I really just went uh, each step of a ladder. I never, I never burned. I didn't start at the top. Yeah. I started uh, with the beginners in the park. Yeah. to uh, more advanced at that part than to uh, uh, regional, municipal, regional, provincial, national, international. 
So if you talk to me about any steps, club, academy, yeah. I've, I've done quite pretty much everything, every yeah. steps. I had Craig Veal, Arthur Ferry's coach, and on last week, uh, a couple of weeks ago on, on the podcast. So he, and Craig spoke about the same sort of thing, and we, we fell into that. And then actually this morning, we had lunch with, uh, with a friend, friends of ours, a very successful businessman. And he spoke about how he got into business age 20, and he went through every single step in his business. And, and, it, and it really kind of hits home to me how important that is for tennis coaches. You know, and I think there is quite a lot of tennis coaches out there that want to jump the steps and some of tennis players, you know, whereas by doing each step, you then have the absolute context and you have empathy for everyone that you're working around. You, you're able to just bring all of the different information you have into, into a real world. Whereas if you miss too many of those steps, you, you often get found out, I think. I think so because I, I see when we coach like three three different roles that we have. I think uh, we teach a lot. We have to be good at skill development. Yeah. We drill a lot. We have to be good at training and yeah. push the comfort zone, push the limits, push the reflex, the footwork, everything. And we have also to be a good match play coach, yeah. which means show them how to win more points or lose yeah. less points and stuff like this. I, I think it's difficult to be great at those three when you start right away at the top or right away traveling because you don't do that much skill development when you're with the player on the road. I don't say we don't do because we do, but we don't do as much as when you start with 12, 13 years old, you have to need a lot of skill development. Also, when you train at home or you do a training camp, you do more drilling than on the road. On the road, you don't try to exhaust your player. You know, you have to keep them fresh. So to be a very good driller, I think it's easier when you work in an academy, when you have an old base. And then, of course, to be a good match play court, then you have to be <laughs> at tournaments. So this is pretty much what we emphasize. Uh, we want a good coach to be someone who helps players to win yeah. and help their confidence and all this. So uh, ex-players sometimes who travel on their own could be really good at that. Yeah. But it's, it's one aspect of being a complete coach. Yeah. So I think if you do all the, the steps, like you, you know, you're working in an academy and then you go on the road and all this. I think touching everything yeah. makes you a bit more um, all-around yeah. type of coach. And I think yeah. it could be important because at any point, even if you're a top player with the, the best in the world, when you say, gee, I don't feel my friend down the line, yeah. you have to be able to intervene and teach it in a nice, easy, simple way yeah. that the player will say, okay, yeah, I feel it now, thanks. That helps. No, no, that's very good. And then if I take you forward then to, I think you said 2007 that you arrived in the UK? Yeah, yeah, March 27, 2007. My birthday. Yeah. Oh, yes, see, <laughs> that, that was, <laughs> yeah, I remember well, because that was a big move for me, you know, to leave uh, Canada uh, at age 55. I was well established there to start completely a new life. And uh, that was a big decision. So I remember, and I'm very pleased to have done it, by the way. Yeah, and it's been it's been an incredible journey, and I think somewhat very close to my heart. You know, with my, I don't claim to be a world class doubles player, but I was an okay doubles player. I I did definitely live with 
a bit of a feeling of regret for a few, a few years because I, I stopped playing probably 12 months before you arrived in the UK. <laughs> and I watched all of these guys that I used to beat all of a sudden. I was all of a sudden going, what? They, they weren't that good. They're now like 50 in the world, 40 in the world, 30 in the world. So so you instantly got, got my attention. And I think, I mean, we could, we could talk for hours about the success that you've had. And I think, you know, we, we all know, and I think British tennis is forever in debt for, for what you have done for British tennis. You know, it's, it's absolutely incredible. The, the, the record speaks for itself, but what I'd love to then get into is what, what's that built on? You know, what are the, what are the key principles that you've brought in place? Because it, it very much seems to me like you have brought a system which isn't always the easiest thing in the world to do, to bring a system somewhere, but it really feels like the player has had to come in and then fit into that system, I'm sure, in their, in their own individualised way. So can you tell the listeners what the key principles of that system are, Louis? Uh, yes, and, and this is why I never call it the Louis Kaye system. It, I call it right away the British double system. Yep. I wanted that uh, to have a system that will impact the juniors, the uh, senior, everybody, men's, women. And it, it could be called a system because it's all based on space and positioning and movement yep. and to cover your space very, very nicely. People will think, yeah, that's quite easy, but it's not that easy yep. and uh, to do that. And it's mostly based on a philosophy uh, that we won't go there to necessarily to win the match because we're going to serve them out, kick them out. We're going to make them lose the match. Yeah. Uh, because by creating a lot of uncertainty uh, with our place and our movement, I, I think that uncertainty creates often anxiety. Anxiety creates muscle tension, yep. poor timing, and people start to play bad if they worry that you cross, you move, you poach, you squeeze, you fake, you yep. disguise your move and all this, that eventually it keeps putting pressure, 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 and uh, that can uh, make you win a lot of match with what it is. And regarding on space, for example, on the return of serve, the serve, the receiver's partner never protect the trend line yep. no, or the, the corridor, the alleys, people call that differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, <laughs> they never protect until they get beat three times in it. Okay. But now it has been uh, 14 years with many Brits playing. It didn't happen to anyone. And before I had the same rule in Canada, it didn't happen. So if it doesn't happen, why should you protect something that doesn't happen? So it makes them like so much more central in the court that if yeah. you serve in volley and you see the guy like almost in the middle of the net, then you, you try to volley in the trend line. And if you try too hard, uh, you can miss it. But it doesn't mean that when I say don't cover it, if you're sure that the guy goes there, that you, you're not allowed to move there. So sometimes you will change a bit your technique to it's, it will be so obvious that you're going toward the yeah. trend line that the guy will just go back toward the line and just smack back to you. And yeah. then you feel bad because oh, I, should, I should have volley cross court. Then you get used to see him in the middle. You volley cross court. You avoid him once or twice or third. And then this time you decide to poach. But it's so close to the middle of the court that if you poach, yeah. you know, he's very effective. It's based on winning 51% of the point, yeah. not to kill the guy, to make them try a low percentage shot and to raise our level of anxiety so they get stressed by by what we do and how we are and and of course to always bring high performance energy and guess what that was uh, the last speech again with joe and i praise him on that today 
to always control the controllables, baby. The controllables. So today, even if they were getting like really beat, they kept fighting. They kept playing point by point. They they control. They keep controlling their energy, their attitude, yeah. their intention. It was not enough, but it's part of them now. We'll control what we can control. Yeah. Our energy, our attitude, our mindset, our effort, you know, and our intention that we want to go. Yeah. And that, that brings you a long way, you know. When we say stand the process, what is the process really? Yeah, Everybody yeah. say that. Don't concentrate on the outcome. What is the process? But what is yeah. the process? Yeah, yeah. You control the controllables. One of it is that, and uh, yeah. and I think that's the base. I think, uh, and and when I make a presentation on British double system, I put two arrows. One is how we develop performers, and how we develop them as tennis players, and as performer is their identity, beliefs, values, mindset, attitude, and mental skills. So like. Let's say a, a belief, no one loves a bread because we can cross the service line before a love. Yeah. Nobody does this. We do that. We're this. A lot of small belief. And uh, yeah, I, I like to work at the level of identity, which is the your belief in you uh, and the team. Like have a specific game style. Yeah, values, work ethic, professionalism, excellence, all this. And I think if we don't, uh, if we're not good at developing a performer, we're not really a high performance coach because the words say it in itself. I am a high performer coach. Yeah, so yeah. what should I coach? How to perform in the sport of tennis. Yeah. So then you teach a tactics and technique relate. Yeah, you have to tackle it both at the same same level, performer and tennis players. And that's the base of the British system. Yeah. And the tennis side, because we know the positioning, the movement, who takes the middle and all this. Any Brits can play with any Brits uh, right away. There's no yeah. adjustment. They, they play their own game because they have their own strength. But the, the system of uh, positioning and movement is known by everyone. And yeah. Dean Murray mastered it as well as uh, anybody else who played doubles full-time. Yeah. If you could sort his return out, though, Louis, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> um, but yeah, so if I, so let's say me and I, I stopped playing at 25. I played doubles. You you wouldn't have seen me play doubles, Louis. I played doubles with feel, I would say, if I'm honest. You know, I did the, the things that I've learned since from you, I didn't know when I was playing. You know, I was I was feeling a move. I was definitely too close to the tram lines. I had pretty good hands, so I was quite good at picking up a first volley, but actually it doesn't matter if you're hitting a low first volley against good guys, it doesn't matter because they're closing the net on you, you know, but what if I came in then not looking back now, don't look at me now. Don't tell me I need to get fit. <laughs> Imagine I was fit and I came to you at 25. What are the first three or the three most important things that you're, you're teaching me? Well, I will teach you what you need, right? So yeah. I don't know. So I start with an assessment. You have four roles to play. Yeah. You have to be a server. You have yeah. to be a server's partner. And of course, after that, you have to be both at the net and the wall to see how well you do. Yeah. You have to be a returner, a receiver's partner. And I always teach first where I could make a quick gains. Okay. Even on technique, let's say if you go, if you have to change your grip, I will for sure not start with that. Yeah. I, I'm always establish a relationship of trust. Yep. So we'll start with things that will make you win a lot of points quickly. Okay. It could be server's partner, like don't be close to the line. could be receiver's partner. Look, if you get past in a tram line, you know, at the beginning, you're new, yeah, yeah. You, you always protect it. You look at me and you point and say, it's your fault. Okay, do that. 
yeah. and they realize after the match it didn't happen, yeah. and they they start to have uh, wins that they never had because their their progression is quickly. So I, I gain a lot of trust because by bringing some modification like serve go to your spot because when they serve wide they go to the middle of the court yeah like in singles no no go go to your spot still yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so i make very very quick gain by showing where to position quickly and uh it's amazing how many points to win right away just by knowing where to stand at the net where yeah, to stand yeah. as a receiver's partner where to go after your serve and all this you you win like right away 12 13 points more right away yeah. So so much quick game, and after yeah. that you can go a bit more into details. So I think I will do the same as I did with every Brit. I will look at you serving because that's important. I will say, go there, go there, do this quicker to spot to do that yeah. or whatever. Or I will make you practice the four type of serve, yeah. like induce regular, stay regular poach, I, stay I poach, and then the same thing on the. Yeah add side so to practice like the, your eight variations of movement because if you never practice them you cannot suddenly put a switch on and suddenly make a specific tactics and yeah. and be able to master it so yeah. that's it i just uh, observe analyze and decide what will be best for you to win more points at the very very short term well, I'm going to imagine that you've done all of that with me, Louis, and I'm going to go to bed tonight and I'm going to have some dreams that I was actually, I became a better doubles player than I actually was because it's, it's way too late for me now. But that moves me into the next bit because I guess a lot of people listening to this podcast are, there'll be some that are involved at a, at a, at a higher level, competition level of the sport, but there is also a lot of people listening that, you know, very much a big part of the ecosystem of tennis and club working in clubs and, you know, keeping people playing and, and obviously doubles is a massive part of that, you know, around the clubs in the UK, but all, also around the world. And I know I had this chat with my mother-in-law who hopefully if, if she's listening, hello, Sue. And, and I actually talked to her about just move your positioning. Just that's it. You know, she plays doubles once or twice a week. And I just said, they're not going to pass you in the tram lines. Because that, mm. that was a real fear I had when I played. You just kind of naturally think it's going to mm. go there. But, but like you say, it doesn't. And she reported back to me that just by shifting slightly closer to the center, it was amazing how many balls ended up on her racket. So mm. can, you, can you give... Can you give the listeners and coaches and, and people that are playing at club level, give them one or two little quick tips that could help their doubles? The first, find a good coach. <laughs> you, <laughs> are you, you available? Find, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, find a good coach available because I think first, you, you will probably fit into one of the three major fear. One fear is the fear of getting hit, fear of getting passed, fear of getting loved. Yep. when you're at the net. And if you don't address these three basic fear and you have one, you will not be as effective. So for me, the fear of getting hit, I don't teach, people won't see me near, but I don't see like this. I accept like to have a back and grips that the ball come fast on you. Yep. You already prepare, you cover your body and you cover also if you stretch yep. on your back end and you change your grip for a forehand. So I teach that. Uh, fear of getting past in the trim line, I make a little competition i put like the four members over there i say i'm gonna hit you like a nice uh, ball cross court about at the same pace as you do if you put like uh, the ball in the tram line over three on ten like four on ten you know yeah. three on ten 
I buy a drink to everybody or yeah. whatever it is, and they don't succeed. They, yeah, they, yeah. They, they cannot do it. It's difficult. And I say even less. I mean, if the ball is very easy, maybe, but it, if your friend it, anything that looks a bit like attacking, a bit like annoying, yeah. because it's a bit deeper, it's a bit more. Please don't protect it. Switch yeah, yeah. a bit to the middle. But if it's very short and easy, yeah, okay, protect your trend line, but not. And they realize, okay, so you have to change your belief about things. And for the lob, uh, I say on the first serve, if you get lobs, it's okay. Your partner will switch because their partner stays back. Yep. No big deal. And when you're both at the net, I show them where to stand in the, uh, in the wall. And I show them the service line behind. And we make them a, a little test. Every time they cross the service line before a lob, which is slow, they never get loved. Yep. So I tell them, look behind, how far is it? Okay, now love, cross the line before and even like a, like normal member, if they cross the line before, yep. they don't get loved. So you, you have to break the you have to break these fears to be good. Yeah. Second, this is more, I know you wanted to talk to member for the coaches. Stop having people serve and volley everything, men and women. Yeah. There's about 90, 90, 95% of the women stay back on their serve, and now 55% of the men stay back on their it's 55 serve. 55 now, is it? Wow. Yeah, it, every year it, it, it goes up. There's more and more singles players playing. So why would you force me like me? Now, if I go in a club to train and the guy force me to serve in volley, my, my knee won't take it, you know? Let me serve and stay back. No. And if uh, people are afraid to get hit, you know, like on the hot seat, most of a lot of people play bold back now let them play bold back yeah, let yeah. them serve and stay back and let's let's show them how to win when you stay back on your serve or your bold back on the return and this is all fine now the, the players do all these variations so that's it so respect the members and Very you good. members have a coach who will ask, uh, help you to go past the fear of getting past getting hit and getting loved Yep. And you're going to be very effective in doubles. Very good advice, Louis. And to, and to pick you up on that, it was actually something I wanted to talk to you about, and, you, and you've brought it up there, is about the serving and staying back. And I, I, I knew it was around 50%. I didn't realize in the men's game it had gone to 55 and the women's as high as 90, 95. How much have you had to evolve the way that you coach on the back of that, because I guess that that changes that changes lots of things when you're teaching players. Well, it changed a lot. Like, uh, for example, Jamie start to chip and charge, like you see in the, in the club yeah. or in singles, because yeah. if the guys stay back, you will not stay back and start to battle, especially play on do side. That when you will battle against the best singles players in the world and their forehand, and he will be yeah. on his back end. Why should he do that? Yeah. He does that. Second. Yeah, we start to introduce a lot of different tactics. Yeah, there's a lot of tactics. And for both back, we put the rule, for example, never, never volley twice in a row to the forehand. Yeah. It's like, it could be like simple, yeah. but go go reach the back end because the back end, even if it's steady, normally there's less revolution in the ball, more less shape. It's, it's a bit yeah. flatter, so there it's easier to volley. And we have developed, uh, I remember doing a, a camp it was six, seven years ago. The team was let's beat those dot 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 singles players. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So let's beat uh, these guys when they stay both back. We're gonna volley on the do side back end guy. He will have no angle on his back end, and we'll do that. Yeah. We'll yeah. do this. We'll do that. So yeah, I have to redesign a lot of the patterns because yeah. until even 2010, if someone was serving and staying back, he will look like 
what are you yeah. doing you know and yeah. uh, suddenly it starts you and it when it when it uh, crossed the pivotal like 20 percent like if you read that the tipping point there's yeah. always a a number where people start to say oh it's fine to do that and yeah. it has uh, helped people to to stay back to not feel forced like yeah. neil skupski uh, he will serve in value for a serve, but he felt very comfortable and not inadequate to serve and stay back on his second yep. serve and smack his forehand. But if he was 10 years ago, he, he would be criticized. To he would be back. a sissy. What you do in your sissy, you don't stay back. It was very, yeah, it was exactly. very much like that. I mean, I, Louis, I remember I went, it was probably back in 2004. I played a challenger event in Barcelona on the clay. And I actually, I actually signed up for partner wanted. I thought <laughs> it'd be quite nice to go to Barcelona. You know, I, I, I signed up and I, I ended up playing with Tamuri's Gabishvili. Oh yeah. And yeah. we drew Andre Saar and Levinsky first round who were both about top 50 at the time. They, you know, we, we turned up and, uh, Gabishvili, it was my first experience playing with someone who served and stayed back. And we lost the first set 6-1. And I didn't really know what was happening. I was like, <laughs> you know, he was like, I was stood there. And then he sat down at change of ends and, and I said, come on, we can, you know, we can do this. To you know, I didn't know him really. And he just said, mm. and he really spoke to me in quite a strong Russian accent. No, we take one, one point, one point, one point at a time. And he then honestly hit winner after winner yeah, after winner. So for yeah. two for two sets and I just had to knock a couple of volleys off and I thought wow this is like this is the future this is amazing <laughs> so a couple of days later we played against Fernando Vicente and Oscar Hernandez who were both top 100 singles guys center court Barcelona and it was the worst 45 minutes of my life <laughs> <laughs> it was three players at the back of the court and me at the net and you talk about trying to find their backhands. I don't think they hit one backhand in the match. <laughs> I don't know if you know, remember, Vicente was very talented and skillful yeah. with the forehand. And Oscar Hernandez just like smacked heavy, heavy forehands. And it was, we lost six love. And I think it was six, four on the second set. It was a bit more respectful, mm -hmm. but it was just, I wanted the ground to swallow me up. So the ability to adapt to that is, is yeah. something that certainly I felt as a player. And, and, and I'm sure, like you say, as a coach, you've had to do that as well. Yeah. One thing that is important on that, because I've been in club sometime and observing and the coach asked the member when the servers stay back, to go to the net, go to the service line, go to the net, go to the service line. This is impossible. Yep. So at the beginning, the doubles players, when they were dealing with that, they didn't know what to do. So, so I think what is very important, I, I give them a system to how to move when the ball go back and forth across. Yep. If, if they rally, it, the play is pretty much neutral. So you stay in the wall position. You don't yep. go close to the net. You don't go to the service line. You just stay more or less there. Yep. You shift a bit toward the middle to give your the chance to your partner to hit the ball down the line. Yep. And you move a bit there. As soon as it, it's an attacking shot, service is stopped, then you move close to the net. Squeeze, yeah. And if it's a defensive shot, really short, then the guy will attack you. You can back up to the service line and defend your tram line. Yes. And let the guy, because you protect your tram line, hit cross court because your friend of the baseline will have much more chance to deal with it than you if the ball is smack at you. Yep. So it's a it's tough for your the people who's listening right now because you don't see it, 
but uh, it's, a, it's a simple system. Don't go close to the net unless it's an attacking shot. If it's yeah. neutral, stay pretty much in the, yeah. in the wall position, which is a bit in between the net and, and just move a bit to your right or to your left. Yeah. And if you're in defense, because they're going to attack, just retrieve back to the your own service line a bit closer to the tram line. And after that, read what's going on after that. Very good. And, and, but running back and forth like crazy, it's not no. an option. You do see it, and you see it all the time, and you see people, they're like headless chickens. Yeah, yeah, because they're coaching. Like, Come on, go up, go up, back, 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 up, 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 back, 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 back. Poor, poor members, you know, they get like, they just cannot follow. But the nice thing is they don't have to do that. Yeah, it's like cardio tennis. Yeah, yes, exactly. Cardio tennis session. But yeah, one of the ones, and I know you talk a lot about this, and I would be a big believer in this, is what, what's the best way to be a good doubles player? Pick the right partner. Yeah. And, you know, and, and in terms of, in terms of that, one thing that always fascinates me, Louis, is, and I remember the Bryan brothers saying this, that every December or going into January, Australian open, they felt as if they ended up being the best team in the world because so many people had split up at the back end of the year before and they kind of took their time getting to know each other. And then the last half of the year, they felt like teams started to really catch them up and maybe overtake them. And, and it just seems like there's so many changes so often. I guess there's, there's lots to talk about on this, but how, how are people, how do you pick the right partner to, to start with? It's, it's, it's difficult uh, because sometimes it's based on pure business. You want to do the masters. Yeah. You know, the masters like Formula One of tennis, thousand point, a lot of money. This is where, and if, you're, if your ranking is 30, even if the, the nicest guy, let's say Johnny O'Mara is very nice. Yeah. Everybody likes him. He's good, good player too. But if his ranking is 60 and you're 30, yeah. if you play with him, you cannot play the Masters because the cut is about 55. So 30 plus 60, it's 90. You won't play in it. So you have to find a guy in the top 30. So that's not a lot of people. Yeah. Then if you're the outside player, you have to find a do side player. Okay. So now suddenly it, you cut right away almost in two. So you have about 10, 15. Some teams are already established. So you don't, okay, to put it simple, you don't have that much choice. Sometimes you, you pick up someone and you try to make it work. And, or you try to find someone who com, uh, combine your, your strength. Like, for example, uh, Jamie Murray, because we both know him very well. Yeah. His, his game is more on, on volley. Yeah. So he will, he will want to have a partner like Nils Kupski or Bruno who can return the ball quite hard yeah. so that he can impose and intercept the volley and more shine at the net. And if you play with someone who would not return hard, for example, and... Uh, and the guy who returned hard, don't mind that Jamie loves a lot because yeah. it creates a lot of variation. One guy is lobby on one side. The other guy, it's hard on the other side. You know, you don't give a rhythm. Yeah. Jamie served lefty. The other guy served righty. So you, you don't have as much choice as yeah. you may think because you have to choose in a very Absolutely. small bracket. Yeah. And after that, you have two choices. Either you get along well with the guy and you go have lunch often, you have a social yeah. time, or you don't get along with the guy. Yeah. And there's no social activity. Yeah, yeah. And you just meet on the court for the warm-up and the match. Yeah. And you play as a business, you know, as a business partner. And these teams are those who will split more often because as soon as the business is not good, yes. they, they want to change. That must happen, easy. though. It's not easy to find a good one. Yeah. And this is why I think why I'm very uh, quite good is I coach a team 
I, I see coaching double as coaching three people, a coach, a do side player, the outside player and the team yeah. in which way the do side player will set up the outside. Yes. And so on and so on. And if you start to develop a team, a team identity, team tactics, team, and everything is team, you know, the, always that team has a main focus. You create a bit that bonding and that, that special thing that they may stay together longer. Yeah. Because it, it could not just be based on liking each other or no. because a lot of time they come from different culture, you know, like, uh, like Bruno, for example, is Brazilian, this, or Rajiv is American and is a British and they have different culture, different uh, interests, maybe in sports. So they have different, they're different. So, yeah. so I have to find a common ground and the common ground is the team identity yeah. and to develop a lot of a, uh, a real team approach that makes them stick and bound together. Yeah. yeah. Well, Jamie, Jamie looks like a different person, in my opinion, on court with Bruno than he did on court with Neil. You know, I, I went to the Davis Cup tie in Marbella when GB played Spain and Jamie played with Dom Inglot. And you could just see that, that, that it, it didn't connect. Maybe it was a court surface thing. Maybe it was a personality thing. Maybe it was a, a game style thing. But it, it does seem to be very, very micro level to the individual on what's going to work. Yes, yes. I would not say like it works with every, every, everyone. Uh, Bruno, yeah, Bruno bring is, uh, it was not just the level of play because uh, Neil serve Hazard. Yeah. Return Hazard, volley, spectacular. In that case, it was mostly, I think, uh, Bruno is Brazilian, is very chill. Yep. And I think uh, and I think Jamie needs something like, like that beside experience. Yep. So where he could like hump and all this. And I don't know, yep. just like he, he feels it's a good match. Yeah, yeah. you can just and, see and, it. And, yeah, it's, it's nothing to do. Like uh, Thumbing Glut serves well. You know, it's a good player. Neil's a good player. Bruno's a good player. Yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah. When you find someone that match, then you you stick with him. Yeah. Now, he, and he has played three years with Bruno, so he knows his game right away. So when they start, it was not like looking to know each other. So they won right away Melbourne. Yeah. And make the semi, so they play indeed well. So, and even maybe the split was good because they they have learned to appreciate what everyone was bringing to the team. Yeah. And now they know what each bring to the team, so there will be no. Uh, you know, just expectation, not even, I hope he does that. I expect he does that, and I yeah. know he won't do that. Yeah. So you know what the guy brings to the team, yeah. you accept it, and you you go for it. And how does that work with, because I, I believe Bruno's got his own coach as well. Yeah. So how does that then work with you coming in? Is there any, any ever any conflict between coaches? It, ne- it never happens, I'll touch wood. Okay. It never happened. And many situations... Let's say like even Jamie to travel this time. Colin was there because Alan McDonald. Congratulations, Alan. Yeah, he's had, had a, a baby. baby. I saw that. Congrats. A baby. Yeah. So like uh, Jamie will be with Alan. Bruno will be with Hugo. And me, I come. So who I'm coaching? I'm coaching the team. Okay. And and uh, Bruno will see me as helping him too. Okay. If you talk to Rajiv, he will see, see me as helping too. Okay. Because I'm helping the team. So it's hard for me to help the team without giving advice to yeah. Bruno, without giving advice to Rajiv, without giving advice to any uh, British partners. Yeah. So, I, so they see me as uh, coaching the team. I do have a reputation because I'm on the tour since 1987, <laughs> started to travel. 
and start to be with the leading doubles team since uh, even 1990, 1991 and all this, uh, the Canadian were doing very, very well. So I have a bit of the reputation and they kind of let me not control, but charge of the team. Yeah. And, uh, but I will not go correct. For example, the, the serve or whatever technique the coach will do that. Uh, but I could say, I would like you serve a bit more white, for example, yeah. but I will not do, I will just do that, the team. And, and that goes very well. I'll touch wood, like I said, but, uh, and, and yeah, and presently all the British coach are British players too. So yeah, yeah. Rob Morgan with Joe, yeah. like, uh, and George Morgan with them yep. and Luke and uh, Tony with Johnny O'Mara. So, so everybody, we are really in the British family now. Yeah, yeah. British players coached by British coaches. Yeah. Is your communication now more directly with the players or more directly with those coaches that are spending the time with the players? Uh, it's, it's with both. Yeah. Uh, when I travel, it's obviously with both. Yeah. And uh, we discuss all this. And now that with that invention with Zoom, like yeah. uh, every morning with the time frame, I was meeting different team at nine o'clock a.m. It was like eight p.m. Okay. So between nine and twelve, I was meeting different team. Yeah. We go with their match. Uh, make a edit. I go through the videos. Yep. We talk with the coach and the players. I make them some question. Looks what happened. You know what do you think should have done? Oh yeah, I should have. So we do a lot. Uh, you know, like interactive yep. assessment, and then we say, okay, next practice, do a bit more this and that, and. That's it. But like I say, my my relationship with the coaches are excellent. Like right now, even Colin helping Jamie. I coach Colin like yeah, many yeah. years. Yeah. So it, it, it makes uh, life very easy. And uh, whoever it was, like uh, other coach, like even when Luke played with uh, Ben McClag and his brother, they were really fine to let me lead yeah. the team with that. So Hopefully it stays like this. Yeah. Hopefully I won't get to an age where yeah. they start to lack respect and take too much <laughs> over the hill. But right now, right now uh, I'm happy. Everything goes yeah. pretty well. And of course, uh, I, I respect them because if I was lacking respect and bullying, it will not yeah. work. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, we say, in your opinion, uh, I think I would prefer a recommend. So yeah. I'll take. Uh, I think using empowering, empowering words are important both for the players or for the coach. So if I coach you, I would say, if you go into that match, it may be preferable, then you may consider, you look at the possibility of, and yeah. stuff like this and said, I want you to, you have yes. to, yeah. you must, you need, uh, which are not at, at all empowering. So as long as I talk like this to their coaches and to the players, I think I create a good energy yeah. Yeah. and a good synergy and uh, it's going well. Very good, and on uh, in terms of the the game of doubles, I know we've we've touched on st more staying back now, more servants stay back. What what other things do you see that are changing in doubles right now? I think more people know how to play doubles. It, it's funny because not because they stay back, they don't know how to play doubles. All the singles players, almost everybody know how to do di formation. Yeah. Almost everybody knows that. A lot of people know the basic play, like if you serve. If you want people to have uh, to hit cross court and take the middle approach, you serve jump forehand or T. If you want them to have hard time to hit cross court, you serve jump back in or wide. The, the, these basic tactics that was known 10 years ago just by a few elite doubles players. Yes. The knowledge is there. Everybody knows that. So everybody plays smarter doubles. Yeah, I think just a lot of people know how to play doubles now. So yeah, yeah. Double specialists 
they, they have tougher competition. And especially the singles players, those who hit hard with their ground strokes, have zero complex, and they have learned how to construct the points to uh, to do better. If they feel they close a bit too much the net, they will love, they will do this. They, uh, Yeah, I think the level is very strong. It's, it's tough. Do you think it's got more boring to watch because of that? Like, especially indoor doubles, like, or, or quicker court doubles. Uh, you hear people talking about it, and I can I can see it that it's it is a little bit serve return knock off a volley. You know, you don't you don't maybe see as many exciting points on the on the on the indoor court in particular, the quicker courts now. Maybe on their court, but I I think it was a bit the opposite. In uh, 2000, I I stopped traveling one year uh, because I promised that, and uh, I was traveling already for 13 years. It's after I finished Davis Cup captain. I'll stay at home with my ex-wife and I say, well, do something else. And I became manager of a big club and I went back to coach the interclubs, all the interclubs. Yeah. And I said, my God, it's so much more exciting to coach. It yeah. was the, all the women's league and all this. They stay yeah, yeah. back. There's love list. Point flow, go forever. And a matter of fact, I think the contrast of styles make double more interesting. Okay. Because at the end of 2000 and stuff, I guess every match, everybody's serving volley. Yeah, yeah. A serve volley, serve volley, serve volley. Now serve, stay back, big drive, love this, this coach. I think there's so much variation if you go into a match. Personally, I, I think double is more exciting now than it was. Okay. There's more variation, much more things is happening. Okay. And because they play both back, there is also much more like a longer rally. Because when you're at the service line, you either make a steal yeah. uh, but, uh, or the point is over. But now... Scotting is much more difficult. Right. Uh, like I say, scout the do sides, cut the odd sides, scout the team. What is their strength each individually? What is their strength of the team? What do they do? What they don't do? In the past, it was everybody played the same. Now it's yeah. not. And it's, uh, for me, much more work, but much more enjoyable also. And when you talk about scouting, how much of the scouting is is objective scouting? So taking data you know, that this is, you know, they make X amount of, or win X amount of points when you serve to the backhand or body backhand or forehand. And how much is it, is it about moments? You know, that real kind of like coaches, eye, coaches feel that in the moment, in the moment, this player isn't so brave or in the moment, you know, you can get on top of this guy with your energy. You know, how do you get the balance of that when it comes to scouting? I'll answer right away with the last thing regarding energy. If I say, yeah. okay, if you play Roger, if you play this, these guys are very aware that they put energy, screaming all this, and that it affects the energy of the other team. So I make them aware, okay, they're going to do this, uh, that, 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 and match up with the energy. Yeah. So they, they will match up that. So they will not uh, get intimidated by energy. So I will point out the scouting. Then when I scout, I don't scout also what they do. Because that's quite easy. I, I coach, I scout a lot, but they don't do. Okay. So this is what people don't realize that they think anticipation is to know what people will do. It is a part of anticipation, but it's hard yeah. to know exactly what they will do. But sometimes you can find out a lot what they won't do. And that's kind of important because if you know a guy will never, never love, for example, you can be closer. If you know the guy never hits there or never hits his jam back in line or never do this or his second shot, he never do that whatever it is, or they never poach on the second serve, or they never do this, that's important knowledge to give to the players. Absolutely. And yeah, if they're not brave, I, I know once 
Andy, it was a Navis Cup. I would not say against which team because then the <laughs> player will know who I'm talking about. That guy is not brave, Jamie. If you go break point for sure, poach, he will never dare to try to pass you. And then bang, then Jamie was poaching, bang, bang, and it worked so well. But yeah. uh, Andy was feeling these things and played his game about yeah. being brave and all this. So yeah. you, thought, you, you talk about who they are as performers, who they are as players. And I, I scout a lot of what they don't do. That's very useful. But sometimes we have stats, like we have, uh, we build up a, a PBI, which is all the stats match after match building up. So for example, we watch at Pulasek on the do site, serving to Joe was poaching about 90% of the time. We say that to Joe, Pulasek poached 100% of the time today. Yeah. And even if he knew it, he could not do much about it. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. serve was too big, position too big, so he didn't win point. But at least he was aware. It's not like he goes, he was surprised that the guy poached a lot. We say he's going to poach like almost all the time and he poached yeah. all the time. Yeah, but I think that point's important, Louis, that I think you can give information, but ultimately if the serve isn't good enough or if someone doesn't execute something good enough, your, your information isn't going to work, isn't going to work. And I think that's important for coaches and players to know as well. Yeah. But like I say, I think the cliche, you better have a game plan going into it. It doesn't guarantee to win. Yes. But absence of game plan will make you lose or will make you panic or make you worry or make you, uh, because you need clarity of mind, at least, Joe, it was clear what he was trying. It was clear, but could not execute it. Yeah. But if he didn't know what to expect, and he, if he had to worry about what's going on also, and if he didn't have clarity of mind also, then that would have been even worse. It would have been one and yeah. one, the result, you know. So I think it's good to go with the game plan. But now I've learned over the years that when you scout, especially a tournament, a team you didn't know, and you just see it once, I say, in that match against these guys, they have done that because let's say you've, you, you play clay quarters against clay quarters. They all return cross court all day long because nobody poached and on do I. Yeah. Suddenly I said, oh, they never return line. Now they play a Brits who are reputation to poach a lot. What do they start the match? They return line all the time to freeze yeah. the net player. Yeah, yeah. And they look at me and say they never hit line. Yeah, but on that match against guys who were not poaching, yeah. they didn't feel they have to against yeah, yeah. you. They will. So, I've learned over the years. So I always say that on that match against these guys, yeah, yeah. this is what happened. But against yeah. you, they may do something else. But let's start with that and let's see what happened. Yeah, no, but I always give them the full right of uh, do whatever they feel is the right thing to do. Yeah, I always make an effort to use these empowering words I had talked to you before because I yeah. really believe that bottom line, it's them on the court. It's them who will make the decision, the play, and... They have to adapt, like you say, at the moment. Yeah. And if the people have, or they win the first set 6-1 and the opponent have to change something. Yeah. So if they change something, they have to adapt to not lose the second set. So they have complete freedom to adapt. How does this statement make you feel, Louis? Yeah. Louis Kaya is a world-class doubles coach. Wow, what an honor. <laughs> I, I, I find coaching doubles much more complicated than coaching singles. Yeah. Uh, the tactics involved in doubles, the level of patterns you need to master because of the lack of time. Like I say, you coach uh, like three, you coach the do side, add side, and the team, three players, like three, per, three identities against three identities. So it's like six things going on in the puzzle. You juggle with all that. 
You develop team chemistry, peak performance for the team and each individually and tactics. It's so much more complicated. Yep. Those who don't appreciate doubles because they don't know doubles, yep. they don't understand that. I, I feel my skills of coaching doubles has to be so much higher. And then, yep. also, of course, when you coach even technique, you have two guys. Yep. And in my case, if you have like many doubles team, I think it's very, very demanding. And I did coach singles. People sometimes don't know, but I coach uh, nine players who became top 100, you know, that I developed. So I, I, I did do a lot of singles and I was Davis Cup captain for uh, many years. So dealing with singles players. So, and I work with the Fed Cup seven years and I work with the juniors. So I work with everything and I work with the recreational players. I think I'm simply a coach. I think I'm an effective coach based on my track record who has decided to specialize a bit in doubles and also my, my stickers. I was coach of number one in doubles or coach of a single single uh, top 50. So which label was more appealing even for the LTA Federation? Yeah. A number one or a top 50? So they choose number one and say, could you make a difference in doubles for our country? We are rated about how many uh, top 100 players we produce. Could you develop two doubles players in the top 100? Yep. Because when I arrived, they didn't have a top 100 players for the last seven years. The last uh, was in 2000. So I, say, I yeah, was British number one at 150. Yeah, I know. When I arrived, uh, the best was uh, James Auckland at 130. Yeah. yeah. So, the, so there was none. So I say, yes, I'll, I think I'll do that too. And then, well, since then, I think, I don't know, 12, 13. 14, I'm not so sure. But do you feel, I mean, I know that, and I said to you off air on this as well, Louis, genuinely for me, you are you are the best, certainly one of the best coaches in the world of tennis, you know, and, you. and I, I would I would absolutely not put it down to, to singles, doubles, anything of, of tennis. You know, I think you, you're incredible in, in, in everything you do on that. So do you feel sometimes disrespected that you completely, that you can get pigeonholed over there or, or is it just kind of wash over you? If I would have based my life being affected what what people say think and all this you know like uh, like if i tell you i use that analogy quite often then i don't like your green air they're terrible you're gonna laugh because you know you don't have green air yeah, so yeah. you will say what make you say that yeah. you know like i oh, and it was a reflect on the lights whatever so when people say uh you're not a good coach you just go doubles it makes me smile yeah. I, I think they're a bit ignorant I think a good coach is a good coach and to develop big performance at the same time with two different players going into a match and stuff like this, you need a lot of human skills. You need a lot of coaching skills. Yeah. And uh, no, it's just, it just a hierarchy. I know very much. It's like men's singles, women's singles, men's doubles, and women's doubles in that order. Yeah. A male coach will be more highly regarded than a female coach and in general. And uh there's that hierarchy and I don't know why. And after that, it goes to junior boy under 18, yep. <laughs> junior girl under and 14, 14. It goes like there's a big hierarchy, but the coach with the juniors under 18 who has developed him from scratch 14, bring him to number one in the world under 18 could be a fantastic coach, yeah. but he was not either a past player who had the chance to go right away on the tour with the top player, but who knows? So me, doesn't really matter, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just think, okay, think whatever you, think whatever you you want. 
I know who I am and I would not be affected by uh, what people would say. Louis, I thought you said, Dan, it looks like you've got lots of gray hair. And I was, and I looked at, and I looked at myself <laughs> in the mirror to this morning. I thought, poor, this gray hair is getting more and more. So you've actually just hit a nerve with me there. You know, you, <laughs> I was like, the cheeky, he's actually right. I am. I'm looking a lot older. Sorry, uh, next, time <laughs> next time I will say red hair. I <laughs> uh, so, so in, ter in terms of singles, Louis, do yeah. you, do you watch a lot of singles still? Are you, would you say you keep up with the trends of singles? I, I try to look uh, at that, of course, but honestly, the the time that requires me of course, to watch yeah. up all the doubles match, uh, there's a lot of doubles players. Then after that, it's not all over. After I watch it, I have to analyze it, bring in a software, make comments on it. Then I have to observe the opponents they will play and all this. It, it takes so many hours and it's not done. Then I have to assist the National Academy. Yeah. I have a meeting with them. I have to assist the... And they're coaching with uh, Nick Will, and I'm involved with different things. So there's yeah. so much what I what I do like. It's I do like to watch highlights yeah. because you capture pretty much a bit the highlights yeah, yeah. of the match. Yeah. That I like even today I watch uh, four highlights of singles matches. Yeah. I will like uh, if it's live to watch uh, the last set. I will try to watch the key moments of the match and not to sit down from zero zero first set to the end yeah. of the five sets. Yeah. Because I simply don't have the time. But yes, of course, I, I like it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I like to still watch. But but after a while, you know, it's it's quite tough because even at the Australian Open, I was even also watching the mixed doubles. Yeah, of course. Because of course. the players, as few players working it, so there's just so much time in a day. Yeah. But to answer your question, yes, of course, I'm very interested with singles, yeah. women, uh, yeah. and I try to watch as much as I can. But I'm trying to be more selective. My last topic is is coaching and coaching coaches and, and and i know you've spent spent a lot of time doing doing that as well and you know we talk about or you talk about and i've i've stolen your terminology i now talk about it like this as well that you know with a tennis player we have the performer and then we have the tennis player so taking care of the the performer first and 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 i'll just share a little quote that i that i like that from Theodore Roosevelt. So people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And and how much, I guess, I use that same thing of being a performer before you can get your knowledge across the tennis player bit across to the to the to the to the players. How how important is that side of things for a coach? Yeah. So now um okay with the National Academy and overall with the LTA, we introduced like the three P the person, the yeah. performer, and the player. Yeah. And in a lot of sport now, I've been with the leaders, they do conference, they, involve, they invest a lot in the person. Yeah. They have a performance uh, advisor, people, counselors, because they say, if a guy come, he has problem with his mortgage and all this, it will affect performance. So anyway, in many, many professional sports, they have people specialized to help the person. So that statement, people care what you know and they know that you care. For me, it's to relate with the person, it's to develop, it's not to relate to the performer yet. Yeah. So develop that trust. I think I have, not I think, I had long, very good longevity with players. You know, like uh, yeah. I do, I don't change player like every year or two. Uh, when yeah. I start players, I stay a long time. Because if they feel that I care for them, if they feel I really believe in them, and if they feel I'm systematic and my weight for goal setting that they 
constantly improving with me, why would they leave me? You know, they, there's there's no reason. Yeah. Keep improving. I believe in them and I care about them. So that's the person, and I they have to be happy. They have to be that. At the academy, we check. You know, we have someone. If there's stress at school, it will affect the training. So we have, we, we really try to take care of the person first, yeah. because it affects the performer. Performer, we use the analogy. Uh, I took it from uh, uh, Sanchez Casal, one in their conference. Yeah. Uh, head, heart, and legs. You know, yeah. head is like the mental, heart, the emotional. Start like this, and like I said before, the entity believes values. If you don't have work ethic, you won't even train art. So forget the yeah. how good you're going to succeed. You, you cannot succeed without working art. Yeah. So all these values, these beliefs are important. And then, so we have that. That's it. So to make a short three Ps, person, performer, player. And it's almost in that order. Because if yeah. someone makes a burnout or stuff like this, or have mental health issues, which is a topic becoming yeah. very common and popular now, it's not a taboo anymore. Yeah. If they have big mental health issues, you know, it will affect everything. Yeah. It will affect the performer for sure. Yeah, and absolutely. The so person, performer, player, and uh, yeah. And what you say, like people care what you know and they know that you care. It's absolutely true. And it has to be a genuine care, not a fake care. Yeah. And, and actually, I remember I went to, to Ken Skupski's wedding. And at the time, I knew you a little bit, but didn't didn't probably have a close relationship with you. I'd met you a couple of times, Louis, and that that really hit me that night. Actually, how how close you were to all of those guys. And I remember, you know, you were leaving. I think you were leaving as the dancing was starting, and mm. you know, and and when you were saying goodbye to the guys, and there's Ross Hutchins, Colin Fleming. Ken, you know, all of these guys, it was, they were, they were really, it was like they were saying goodbye to, you know, someone very close to them, you know, and that, and that did, I guess my only experience I'd had with you up until then is you were abusing my feeds in some conference that I'd done. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you did, and you, you're quite an intimidating character, you know, when you, you, when you first meet you, I think because your standards are so high, I think you can come across in quite an intimidating way. And when I saw that side to you with the, with the players, it, it all made sense to me. You know, and obviously, as I've got to know you more and more, you know, I see that side come through a lot. But the one bit, I, but I do want to pick up on with you as well, Louis, because I think coaches can be guilty of just hiding behind taking care of the 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 person and not actually improving them. We, but yeah. but but we can't forget that our job as as tennis coaches is to speed up the improvement and to and to help them to win, <laughs> to to yeah. win more, you know. And obviously <clears throat> that's something that your record speaks for itself on that. But just that is one that I I sometimes when when we talk about person first, I think there is people out there that can say, oh, that's a bit fluffy. That's a bit flat, you know. What do you mean, person first? You know, yeah, we're we're in this business to win. We're in this business to for you to improve my child, and and I think it's obviously having having the performer in there and having having the player in there that has to be done very well. We can't just hide behind being a nice person to to people because, you know, that's not what people are paying the money for ultimately as as tennis coaches. Yeah, I know, but uh, but you know, it it became less fluffy the person because. In the last three, four years, the issue of mental health is very, very strong everywhere. We cannot ignore that anymore. We cannot just push, no. push, push, push. Sometimes you talk to the parents when you say, okay, come on, my boy or my, my girl, you're going to go there and you're going to win this match, right? I'm yeah. going to win. Yeah. I say, what do you want the child to answer you? 
no, I don't, I won't win. Oh, I don't know that or mom. Yeah. You know, the, the boy or the girl say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It puts so much pressure on that because you yeah. don't know if you're going to win. If it's oh. a matchup, you don't know. It's, it's It comes down to a few points, few clutch points. And you don't know, you put tremendous. So just go there and give your best effort, you know. Again, we start with that, control the controllables. Just go there, give your best effort. And as long as they give their best effort and all this, you know, you praise your child and that's that's all. Yeah. So it's to support their journey, make it enjoyable and not project uh, yourself into your child and uh, project your sense of words with their winning, you know, like just support them. And you have to feel free, like if you your child say, I want to stop that to feel fine with it as long as they, because you, you, you develop a lot through a sport to develop a lot of values, a lot of discipline, a lot of, a uh, lot of good things. So yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's very important to make it enjoyable. But uh, all the training camp, we have two key words, enjoyment and improvement. Yeah. Okay. Work hard, play smart. These yeah. are the four, the four key words. Yeah. Work hard, play smart. So the work hard for the training. Play smart is when they play points. Enjoyment without improvement. We don't want that. We don't want yeah. to be like a, a deal, like in the club bed, just a rah, rah, rah. Yeah. And we don't want improvement to the detriment of enjoyment. So as long as we keep these four words in the original training and all this, it will be good. So again, I think there were to be uh, said. Work hard, play smart, and enjoy and improve. And if the coach respect these things, I think uh, we can do good work just with that. And listeners, what a way to, to finish before we go to the quick fire round. This is mm. from a multiple, multiple, multiple Grand Slam winning coach. Many, many number ones in the world. And, and that message of control the controllables is still coming through very, very, very loud and clear, you know, and I think... To, to have that weight to that message coming from someone who has won so much, you know, to still be able to, you know, bring it back to that, to that place, I think is really important. So Louis, you, you have been an absolute stars always. It, it's such a, it's such a pleasure for me to, to have you on the show and to spend this time with you. So, so thank you, but you don't get away without the quick fire round. Okay. So, so yeah. are, are you ready? Okay. Ready. Singles or doubles? Doubles, fascinating. Feeding or hitting? At my age, feeding. <laughs> Eye formation or normal formation? Eye formation, more uncertainty. Poach or stay? Poach, more excitement. <laughs> return down the line or return cross court? Return down the line brings again uncertainty. Davis Cup or ATP Cup? Davis Cup, more tradition. <laughs> Three or five sets for males at Grand Slams? Um, five sets for singles, five sets for doubles, like Wimbledon. And who's going to be the next first-time Grand Slam champion from Great Britain? <sighs> <laughs> okay come on John I can't uh, heal your injury get focused and go win the slam <laughs> good I like it in doubles do you prefer three full sets or a tie break third set three full sets should should players be allowed allowed an injury timeout on the court or not 
yes. What's one rule change that you would have in tennis? Well, well, as a coach, I was, they're doing it in the women. I would like to be able to do it in the men too. Like, uh, you know, like uh, one, one a set. Yeah. Stuff like this. I said, why not? You know, so many sports, they have that intervention of coach. Well, one, one and put a set at least would be a good start for the men too. You would have some serious impact on some of those doubles matches, Louis. Yeah? Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe with that, not. With that 90 seconds. Uh, and maybe. who should our next guest be on the podcast? Uh, I don't know the name, but I, w- I would like you to bring a, a good pedagogue because a lot of thing is about coaching and it's, it's surprising. I went to every ITF conference almost. I didn't do the last one since 1987. Yep. And it's all about coaching. It's coaches. Yep. And they never really bring people about coaching. Yep. How do you really accelerate the learning curve of someone? How do you uh, yep. how do you improve the learning? How do you communicate in a way that whatever it is? We rarely talk about how to accelerate the learning curve, how people learn, how to enhance the learning and all this in a, yeah, in a person I would like to listen to that. Great. If you, if any names come up or anyone's listening, then let us know and we'll, okay. and, we'll, and, we'll and we'll get them on the show. But yeah, no, Louis, a big, big thank you on behalf of myself, but also all the listeners who are going to take so much from that as, as always from yourself. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to your podcast. All the best then. A big thank you to Louis Kaye for coming on the show. It was such good timing to have him on to really shine a spotlight onto the British tennis double system that he's done such an amazing job of the last 14 years. And to bring Vicky into the conversation, is your mind blown enough listening to all of that tennis knowledge? I think I need to go back with a notepad, pen, and and listen to it all again. It's the first episode, actually, that I actually wish that I could have seen him with like charts, diagrams, videos of a court. There was just so much information to be taken from that episode. Yeah, no, there really was. And, and, and I mean, I've known Louis for many years and anyone in the world of tennis, but certainly in British tennis, would have come across him. I think he's helped shape many coaching philosophies, including my own, you know, and it's it, his wealth of knowledge. But, but what actually came out for me was as knowledgeable as he is, he's still able to recognise that knowledge isn't anything without building the relationships with the players. Yeah. And and I think that came through really loudly and clearly. Yeah, and not just building the relationships with the players, but I also like the way he said he spoke to them as well and their coaches if they had their own coach, using those empowering words as he called them. Yeah, and he was a, he was a big advocate of control the controllables, wasn't he? And that was that was quite nice. I think there was there was three or four occasions that he that he said it, and he, he very much linked into it. And it's massive on on the philosophy we have as an academy that we have as a podcast of you are ultimately in control of yourself, but you're not in control of lots of different external things out there. So you know how prepared you are, and and and, and you very much get the idea that his players are walking on that court with complete preparation. And and I love the the analogy he used on the the Joe Salisbury final at the Australian Open. He told him that they were going to probably cross and try and porch on him for ninety five percent of points, 
and Joe knew it was going to happen, but they actually did it 100% of points. And he said, look, Joe, there was nothing Joe could do about it on the day. But they they were okay because they'd done everything in their control. And there's something very comforting about that. And, you know, having Louis Kyer in your corner must really give you that extra bit of comfort for these doubles guys. And what really surprised me were the stats for um, the number of people who are serving volleying. How few doubles players are actually doing it now. Yeah, and I think he said it was 55% on the men's tour and something like 90% on the on the women's tour. And and even going back to my playing days, which is not that long ago, I know it's 15 years ago, it was almost unheard of that you served and stayed back. And I think it's another great one for us as coaches who there's some some of us think we know it all and, and we don't. You know, Louis Kaye is 68 years old. He's learning all the time. He's adapting his ways to the way that the game is and he's trying to stay ahead of the trends. And yeah, what a what a real treat to talk to him. Yeah, and that's just one of three awesome episodes this week to mark us reaching 100 episodes on Control the Controllables. Um, we've had so much feedback from the Nick Bollettieri episode. That's episode 100. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that yet, that is an absolute must. We, how many messages have you had from people just saying, hey, baby? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever been called baby so many times <laughs> in, in a week. It's certainly, it's captured the imagination. And, and I think... Look, it was a different one, you know, and I think I've heard a few people say it was a very difficult chat for myself and, and, it, and it was and it wasn't, you know, because I guess to have the opportunity to speak to to such a legend of our game and, and speak to him on the phone in advance of doing the podcast. But yes, it this one with Louis Kaya, you guys are really taking away, you know, some proper in-depth knowledge of the game. And I think with Nick, it was entertaining. It was, you know, it was full of, you know, lots of lots of different cliches, lots of different anecdotes that you can you can take away and and be highly motivated from. Uh, but it certainly brought a few. I have to shout out to Jimmy Nelson, who he sent me about five voice notes now talking about baby and G Wiz <laughs> and uh, Richard Williams and you know all of these things. So I thank you for your feedback. I, I'm, I'm pleased that it has captured your imagination and you know we will continue to to bring these guests to you we've also had lots of people reaching out on our instagram and facebook one here from rose tennis 2018 saying congratulations dan and soto tennis on the 100th episode i've been listening from the start whilst on the morning lockdown runs love the content and relaxed honest nature of each episode for all players parents coaches and tennis sport fans i highly recommend listening to these podcasts keep up the great work all very nice thank you for your words i i've also seen we've had it's like every time we get a, a, a new review on Apple Podcasts, it's like Christmas Day's come. I don't know if it helps, but everybody on podcasts seem to say that it does. So if you do spare 30 seconds a minute to do that, rate us and review us. And we can't leave without mentioning our 100th episode giveaway that's running over on our Soto Tennis Instagram page. To celebrate the release of the 100th episode this week of Control the Controllables, we're giving one lucky listener the chance to win a Soto Tennis online course of your choice. So back during the first lockdown, we created several programs and courses to help players to keep moving, continue learning, continue improving their game through the pandemic. And if you fancy winning one of the courses... 
just head on over to our Instagram page at Sosu Tennis and find the 100th podcast giveaway post to find out how to enter. I'm also going to put the details of how you can do that as well in this episode's show notes. So good luck if you're going to enter. Good luck to all of you who are entering the competition. I'm off the prep for the recording of our next guest, which is a really special guest again, Borna Korich, uh, number 24 in the world, been as high as 12 in the world. I've got some questions up my sleeve for him. I hope he's game to really get into some insight and we'll be bringing that to you in the next couple of days. But until then, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables. Control the Controllables.